Welcome back to Basic Brain Heart, the show where we celebrate and interrogate creatives of all stripes. I'm Hannah Camacho. Today's show, I'm so excited to share with you, and I know that I'm excited to share many of these with you, but I have to say today's episode is going down in the books as one of my favorite conversations of all time. It's a conversation with music video director Jason Koenig, and he's a natural born storyteller as most directors are but he was not afraid to really dig into his origin story and how his his own personal journey has taken so many unexpected twists and turns but he's just always made the best of it and that has certainly really worked out very well for him and his wife jenny um so i know you're gonna really enjoy hearing each twist and turn and Jason certainly encouraged me to cut it down but I just loved it too much to do that so you're going to get to hear for the most part our conversation in its full form and and trust me stick around because there are so many wonderful practical tidbits that you're going to get a lot out of. Jason's credits are incredibly impressive and I have no doubt you've seen some of his work. He's directed videos such as many of Macklemore's videos um, Ed Sheeran's Shape of You, Ed Sheeran's Galway Girl, Ed Sheeran's Perfect, so many. And I would encourage you to go to his IMDb page because you're just going to be shocked at all the incredible videos that you've no doubt seen and watched over and over again. And his vision is so incredible. And I just love that he is not afraid to demystify the process a little bit. That's something I get really frustrated with sometimes in the artistic community is there's this, this need for mystification and... <laughs> Really, it boils down to a lot of hard work and um, a lot of drive. And obviously, um, creativity is a little bit mystical, but really uh, the secret ingredient that's missing for so many artists and creatives is drive and um, initiative and innovation. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Jason because he's not afraid to go there and I so appreciate that about him. Um, and don't forget to follow Jason and his wife, Jenny. I have links to their profiles in the show notes. And uh, if you have feedback for me or you want to hear someone specific on a future episode, feel free to drop me a line on Instagram at Hannah underscore Camacho. I'm going to get out of the way now so you can enjoy this conversation with Jason Koenig. Jason, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a few weeks now. I am a huge fan of your work, and I'm just really excited to hear your backstory and sort of your your journey up to this point. So thanks for thanks for joining me. Absolutely, you're from Spokane, right? Yes, and I uh, you pronounce it beautifully. <laughs> we get Spokane a lot. Yeah, and you're from the Seattle area. Um, and I'm really fascinated because, um, there are so many creatives, obviously within the state of Washington, but oftentimes folks see where they come from as a barrier to success. And so I'm really excited to kind of hear your backstory, but before we sort of jump into your origin story, if you will, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're up to these days. Uh, I am currently in LA, but headed back to Seattle today. I've Basically, the process for a director in the role that I'm in right now and the position I'm in right now is you write on things a lot. So this week I wrote th I wrote three music videos for three different artists and two commercials. And we'll, we will see. We'll see if I get any of them. And that's <laughs> – it's it's a, it was interesting. The first year that we were kind of directing, I was directing full on, that was the biggest learning – curve was one how do you write 
well quickly, like good ideas quickly. And how do you process being rejected 90% of the time? It's an interesting process because it's like the way, the way that it works a lot is different um, brands or labels will solicit directors and they'll send out a little brief that has a couple of couple guidelines of the vein they want creative in and they'll send it to like 20 directors and then you get down to sometimes you you don't make that you don't make the top couple but basically the label will uh as far as i understand it the label will filter through those 20 down to the best two or three that that they like and they'll put those in front of the artist and then the artist will maybe have a call with two if they if they really like two they'll have a call with two of the directors um or or they won't and they'll just pick the one they want but it's a funny it's That's a funny crazy. process is it more of like a pitch session or do you have to is it more of like a do i like you do you like me are we gonna vibe together kind of a thing usually um when you get so the the you write a thing called a treatment which is a pitch deck it's like the entire creative, the story, the whole story. Those are intense, yeah. <laughs> where you want to be, and then there's images that show you the tone and mm. and the visual style and whatever. So you've kind of already done the pitch most of the time. If gotcha. I get on a call with with an artist, it's because the artist wants to chime in some thoughts that the pitch generated mm. for them, or that they want to. They'll do a FaceTime or whatever, and they want to know if they vibe with you. Wow. So it's both. So and that's probably not something you can really go to school for. You probably had just had to learn on the fly a little bit. That's crazy. Yeah, it, it is definitely quite the it's been it's been quite the learning experience, but you do get better. And I think it's I think it's with anything creative. I think why a lot of creatives don't get better is they think it should all feel really, really natural and comfortable. And I think that, uh, it's, it's like anything else. It's kind of the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours idea where it's like, you just have to work. Now that you've kind of alluded to your backstory just a bit, I'd love to hear a little bit more in depth, kind of you were born and then what, um, talk, tell, tell me a little bit about your childhood and your teen years and kind of when you started to realize uh, that you were passionate about photography. Cause I know that's where you kind of started out. I was born in Kirkland, Washington. Um, my mom and dad ran a construction company. My dad's a, a, a general contractor. And I have one older brother that's two years older than me that for the most part, my whole childhood was better at me than or better than me at everything. <laughs> so I was always trying to keep up. Um, and he was an athlete and I was and, and baseball was kind of our love. Um, my dad, instead of us, when we started getting an allowance, he would take us to the store and we'd want to buy candy. And at some point he pointed us at baseball cards and was like, don't buy candy, buy baseball cards. And it was in the, in the Ken Griffey Jr. era of Seattle history. So uh, that kind of was defining. And we would go to Mariner games and baseball was actually my first love for sure. And when I when I was in third grade, we moved. Um, we ended up moving from Kirkland to a town called Belfair, Washington, which is 
about if you take the ferry from downtown across the water and then you drive 20 minutes west, you will hit the tip of Hood Canal, um, which around the water is is lovely and beautiful. And when you go up the hill, it's Mason. It's in Mason County, which is the biggest county in the state of Washington and not not population wise, land wise. And <laughs> There's a big difference. It, it, there's a big difference, <laughs> and it was interesting because a lot of people have um, a lot of a lot of people from the city have cabins around Hood Canal because it's the warmest body of salt water on the West Coast, like on the tip of Hood Canal. So the Gates and the Nordstroms, and it's it's just big, huge houses around the water. But you go up the hill, and it's like a lot of a lot of trailers, a lot of poverty, a lot of um, lower income, a lot of people that are trying to be off the grid. And my high school was among the worst in the state of Washington. <laughs> so, uh, I grew up out there and there, there's not a lot of art. Um, we did have, we did have a couple, a really good art teacher. I never took art class. We had a teacher that did one period of video a day. I did not take that class either. And, in, in middle school and elementary school, there was really no art. Um, and then when I, and then we had a photo teacher that his name was Frank Greer. Uh, and, and he was a military photographer. He was, he was like Dwight D Eisenhower's photographer, uh, for a while. And he was just this old, uh, mushroom shaped man. And, (laughs) And, and he was almost a volunteer photo teacher in my town. Like he was part-time, he taught, he taught five classes, but he only got paid for two. And he, he didn't have a, a teaching degree, he had a vocational certificate. He was just a photographer in my town that decided that they needed a photography program in my high school. So he taught there for a long, long time. Um, and pretty soon after I graduated from high school, they cut the photography program. No. So that's my town uh, that I grew <laughs> up in. The, 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 we, we had, uh, there's funny statistics from my town that I, I hope are accurate, pretty, pretty solidly accurate. Um, cause I know them from years and years ago when I was a teenager, but these were the, these were either the urban legend or the true facts about my town, either way they're telling we had the highest meth production rate in the country. Oh no. Mason County, although not not there weren't really kids that were using, but that was just part of the culture the of the town because yeah. it's there's just meth houses out, out in the woods. Um, Mason County had the highest teen pregnancy rate in the state of oh, Washington. Snap. And out of my graduating class, uh, which was about 700 kids, uh, 12% got into college wow. and 3% three percent graduated from college oh that's heartbreaking so that's my town uh and and again in the summer on the water it's glorious and really really a fun place to grow up but in in the grand scheme of things it was it's a pretty um there's a lot of heartbreak it sounds like yeah yeah there's there's a lot of a lot of rough stuff happening in belfair um and hopefully it's gotten a bit better, but it's definitely a, a, a rough place where it's an it's an interesting culture to come from. But I wasn't from there. I was from Seattle. Uh, I was from Seattle, so I was always 
which was interesting because because most kids are from there, like generations are from there. And I was a little bit of a misfit always. Um, and I, I never quite dove into what my friends dove into when we were when we were little. So when a lot of them started using and doing things like that, I didn't. And part of that was I really wanted to be a baseball player. That was my first love. And um, and I remember David Robinson of the San Antonio Spurs doing like a don't do drugs kids commercial. <laughs> Want, if you want to be a pro athlete, don't do drugs. And that which did got the trick. <laughs> did the trick. And I, wor- and I worked really, really hard at baseball. And I was a pitcher. And like I said, I had an older brother who was better than me. So I was always trying to like compete and get to where I was as good as him or my friend's. Even playing like stickball in our front yard, I was always behind and trying to trying to catch up being younger. And I started pitching and got really good. And when I was a junior in high school, I had um, several Division One schools looking at me and talking to me about scholarships. I had a scout from the Cincinnati Reds talk to me um, two weeks before the season ended and a week before I blew my arm out. So my my. So my, my, my strategy for paying for college was a baseball scholarship and I put all of my energy into baseball and I loved it. Um, and we would, yeah, we, we played always or we're thinking about it always. And then my, my high school baseball coach, uh, not knowing any better over pitched me and I threw 140 pitches if, if you know baseball at all, this is a lot. I threw 140 pitches on two days rest, and no. um, I threw in 14 of the first 18 games of my junior year, and my yeah. arm kind of exploded. No my shoulder kidding. blew out, and my elbow blew out, and that was the end of that, oh. which led me to a lot of things, but basically had shoulder surgery the next fall. Um, I ended up meeting my wife the first week of baseball season my senior year because I was super depressed and couldn't handle being at school so I ditched school for the week <laughs> and went with went with a neighboring school on a spring break trip to a, uh, a young life camp called Malibu and oh, awesome. met my yeah. wife met my wife there so if I had been playing baseball I likely wouldn't have met my wife anyway side note it's a happy end that's happy ending so I kind of during when I played baseball I took photography I really liked photography because I liked baseball cards and I was like I wanted to go shoot a Mariner game and I took photography my freshman year my sophomore year and my junior year um and I took it in the spring during baseball season I wasn't very good at all Mm -hmm. like I didn't understand aperture shutter speed my photo teacher never let me hang a picture up in the displays because they weren't any good. <laughs> told told me I wasn't creative and because everything <laughs> I shot was boring, and I believed it. Oh, and no. uh, he, he uh, but I, but it's true. I cheated my way through high school photography for three years. Hmm. I would turn in, I would turn in other people's negatives. I took it during baseball season because I didn't have to show up. I could get a photo pass and go on photo assignments to the batting cage (laughs) or go get lunch. (laughs) There was a strategy behind my photography and I I really liked printing pictures, but I was no good at taking them. Um, And it was it was black and white film. And I had an old crappy Olympus OM1 camera 
that had no light meter and uh, all manual settings. And I was real bad at it. And most of what I took pictures of was not in focus because I didn't understand how focus worked. (laughs) And uh, I cheated my way through the class. And then when I blew my arm out, uh, that photo teacher, Mr. Greer, he very much like tried to give chances to kids that were kind of down and out for whatever reason. He always liked the kids that were in that position and tried to help them graduate and pass and whatever. And I was never that kid. I always did pretty well until I blew my arm out and I couldn't write or type my senior year, but I needed credits. And he's just like, take photography, I'll pass you. So I took photography three times um, that after I had surgery my, my junior year three back-to-back classes in a row. And he's like, print print pictures for the yearbook and I'll give you an A so you can graduate. And I I started, uh, I picked up a camera and I was like, you know what, my friends are playing. I'm going to go shoot basketball. My friend was on the basketball team. Um, so I'm going to go shoot David, play basketball. And so I tried taking basketball pictures and, and I wanted to shoot baseball when that happened and kind of, it was my way of getting back into sports and interacting with my friends that I'd played sports with forever. And remember having a conversation with a girl named Kim Hoon and I walked into my photo class and we were the only ones in there and she was a senior and I go, what are you going to do next year? Cause everyone's thinking about college and taking their SATs for the third time and whatever. I should say the 10, per- the 10% of my class that went to college. Uh, are thinking about college, but I'm like, what are you going to do next year? She goes, I think I want to go to school to become a professional photographer. And I remember feeling like a jerk because I said, that sounds terrible to me. I would never want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was the next Monday, it was like right after that, that I walked into the photo class and it was like, God flipped a switch in my brain and I started seeing pictures and, and it was weird. I understood. I, I remember looking at a magazine on the desk of uh, the photo teacher and I, I, it was like, I could read it. It's kind of like the matrix. Like when you're looking at numbers and then it starts being pictures, I, I looked at it and I was like, I know what the light source is. I know what the aperture is. I know what the shutter speed is. And it was just bizarre. And who knows if that was just me absorbing, like (laughs) absorbing the information for four years. Or if it was divine intervention. Yeah. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? But it clicked it definitely clicked all at once. And I, and I was like, Oh, crazy. And I started shooting and then my pictures got really good that spring. And then I, we did an art show at the end of my senior year. And, um, my dad was a contractor. So he built the backdrop to like this, the, the wall to hang the pictures on in this art show at the school. Um, and my photo teacher was like, you can't hang that up. That's that's sports. That's not art. And I was like, I built the backdrop, even though my dad did. I'm like, I'm hanging up pictures. And I hung up three pictures on the wall and of, ki- of kids playing sports. Um, and, and there was a wrestling match that night. Um, and I think it was wrestling. I don't know. Parents were walking by and immediately were like, oh, that's my kid. And they paid me $10 for the picture on the on the board. And I, I was, well, and I, I was smart enough to go, well, can you, I, I go pick it up at the end of the night or one of them was like, can I pick it up after the thing? 
And I'm like, yeah. And then other parents started coming in and going, do you have a picture of my kid? Do you have a picture of my kid? And so I made $800 in three hours selling Whoa. pictures of kids for $10 a piece. That's brilliant. Because I had shot all spring and was like, that's amazing. And I was running into the darkroom and like printing pictures. And that was the first time I ever made money uh, doing pictures. And I had started dating my my wife uh, in that window of time. And she got her graduation portraits back and they weren't very good and I'm like I can do that like let me take them I had cocky 18 year old I had never done portraits before and so I did her senior portraits on black and white film and printed them and her parents paid me like $150 for those I was like man I've almost made a thousand dollars doing pictures this is crazy Still didn't really think anything of it, but I was like, this is cool. And I didn't know what I was going to do the next year for school. I didn't know. Uh, I, I hadn't gotten into any. I hadn't even applied to any colleges. I didn't know what I was going to do. And, I, and, and two weeks after I graduated, I broke my neck. No. How did that happen? I was a I was a chaperone or I was a like a counselor at a freshman trip, like freshman houseboat camp trip thing that a couple schools in our area did that summer. And I uh, I do I ran out into the water on a beach and just like shallow dove. So ran out to my knees and dove straight out. And it was on Lake Roosevelt in eastern Washington. And and they had. It's that's a man-made lake, and they had they raise and lower the water level, and they had ra they had raised the water level, and someone the week before at some point had tied off a log, like dug a log into the ground and tied off their boat to it, and so I dove straight out, and there was a log sticking up out of the sand and not out of the water, caught the back of my head. That's awful. Heard heard my neck break. Walked no. around for a couple of days. Went into the hospital. They're like, you, I don't know how you got up. Nonetheless, walked around for two days. Your C7 vertebrae is fractured, shattered, and compression broken. And there's a piece of bone impinging your spinal cord 13%. Don't move at all if you swallowed wrong right now. It would paralyze you. Then they put a halo on, which is the worst thing ever. They screwed it into my forehead. And that summer, I couldn't do anything. And, and my photo teacher and my parents went in on a digital camera for me for graduation like one of the first early digital cameras that had manual settings, but wasn't a DS, the DSLRs didn't exist yet. Um, but they had got me that, uh, for, for graduation. So I, all I could do was like hardly walk around and I could take pictures of stuff. And then my brother pirated me Photoshop. And so I spent four months where all I did was slept in the hospital bed in my living room in my parents' living room and wandered around and took pictures of sunsets and whatnot and took some pretty things and then a realtor bought them from me for their website and all of this i'm like i could make money doing this and then somebody one of one of my one of jenny's friends uh was like my sister's getting graduating this year could you do senior pictures for her so i did that and i ended up being like i could i could do this and i started a little senior picture business from those two and ended up shooting about 400 senior pictures over the next couple of years. And I was just like, you know what? This is how I, I like, I can, I, I kind of always had a brain that was thinking about being an entrepreneur way more than an artist. And I was like, I saw who did all the graduation portraits around our area. And I was like, I can do that. 
because I'd, I'd had all my friends back in the day for anyone young listening to this before there was Facebook and Instagram, you would, you would get graduation photos and hand out wallets to your friends and write on the back of them. (laughs) And so I had all these senior pictures and I was like, I can do that. So I did. And I, and it went well. Did you end up uh, going to school for it or has it been just kind of the rest is history type of a deal for you? I got into, I went and looked at and got into Brooks Institute of Photography, which I don't think exists anymore. But at the time, like for, for 50 years, it was in Santa Barbara, California. And for like 50 years, it was the best photo school in the country. And I went and it was really expensive. And I was like, my parents can definitely not afford that. And I was like, okay, I can't go this year. But if I shoot all year, I might be able to make enough money to go. And then I started shooting and made close to enough money to pay tuition and was like, well, if I could make this much money trying to pay tuition, why would I go? Yeah. So you really into photography for years. And I honestly love that that's where you started because um, I think I probably said this in one of the email correspondence I had with Jenny, but I feel like in the music videos that you've produced recently, I almost feel like I could freeze frame it on any one part of the video and it would work as a still. It's just, there's something about your approach that's just visually stunning and so put together. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you started uh, getting into video and, and kind of that evolution in your journey. Yeah. Um, I, so I ended up doing photography, starting a photography company and I, and I eventually got into, and these are kind of important details that I don't generally lead with because for some reason in the creative world, this is frowned upon, but it was an amazing teacher for me. And I think creative ego is the enemy of being successful. Not so I'm happy to share. Um, but I, I did, so I did senior pictures and then a friend was like, or someone I did senior pictures for, they, they were like, my coworkers getting married. Um, the mom of, of one of these kids was like, my coworkers getting married and their photographer bailed. Could, and they can't find anybody. Could you could would you meet with them? And I met with them, and I totally lied that I had done weddings before. <laughs> and I I counted I counted the two weddings that I'd been to as weddings I had shot. <laughs> and, I love it. <laughs> and uh, and and I I hustled my way into shooting a wedding, and then I kind of was always I had this competitive spark. I think from being the little brother that I was like I want who's who's better than me. I want to, I want to do that. I want to chase that. And so I found the best photographers around, uh, in the Seattle area. And I was like, I can do that. And I just started trying to outshoot, outshoot them at every wedding. And, and I ended up shooting about 400 weddings as well. Um, and for 10 years we, we shot, we shot weddings every Saturday and Sunday all summer long, which was an amazing teacher. Uh, you, you have to handle, you have to like, and most people hate weddings because the first few years you're like terrified and wake up having reoccurring dreams that memory cards aren't in the camera and that, that you can't find things, whatever. And once you get over that and it becomes just secondhand, there really isn't, aren't many things in the creative world that have more pressure on them than somebody's wedding day. Like you're dealing with, stressed out people, a lot of voices. Um, you're, you're managing locations that you aren't really in control of and a timeline that is super tight 
and and people have are putting way too much pressure in their own mind on this thing and it's my job to make whatever's wrong look right and and it's my job to make sure they really enjoy the day cuz they're spending 80 percent of their day they're spending with me because uh, that's just how it, it goes and so Jenny and I would shoot weddings and we got really good at managing people and cr- seeing backdrops and creating on the fly and like pushing for things to be great and fighting for good light and all these things that um, ended up applying completely to directing it was like I had to direct I had to direct shoots for a long time and I didn't know that at the time. And I had, I honestly had no, no interest in film. And when the digital revolution happened, everyone, like all these articles and photo magazines were like, for photographers to last, they have to do video. And I was like, nah, I was like, nah, I'm never doing video. I'm like, I love photography and I'm, I'm like, I'm good enough at it to not have to do video. And we kind of rose to the ranks of the top. We were the very top tier of, of weddings and, in Seattle and they took us all over the world to shoot as well. And so, and we made a great living and, and got more efficient at post-production and like learned all these processes about how to handle workloads, which is also part of directing it just all in all. And, and it was, uh, it was a total accident. So we were content doing that. I was, I was coaching high school baseball and which I loved cause I, I hadn't been around. Uh, near where I lived. And then I, I taught and I volunteered in the photo class by where I lived. And I was, we very much liked our little life. And then some friends were like, we're, we're, I'm going to start a band with my friend who just got out of rehab. Can you take photos for us for free? I was like, sure, that's going to, I'm sure that'll lead somewhere. Not, I was just like, yeah, of course I'll, I'll do this for you. It was my, my wife's best friend's little brother. And so I took some photos and then I took some more and then I took some more and then they were like, Hey, we did a music video and it, we didn't, we didn't, we want to be more involved in the process. Uh, could you, could you do a music video with us? Like, and we had watched uh, other people do it and they're like, Hey, can you, can you do, try doing a music video with us? Um, and so I directed a song called other side. They asked me to do a song called and we danced and I said, no, nah, I want to do other side because I was working at this high school and I come from a town that had a drug culture. And I was like, no, nah, I want to do that. And, and this song is about addiction. And um, and so I made this little music video for I think it was like twelve hundred dollars and I paid for it because they didn't have credit cards. <laughs> and and we made a music video called Other Side and it did really well. And right in the middle of filming it, uh, the Mariners announcer died. And I was a baseball fan and, and we were on this, on the, the, the set, so to speak, we were stealing shots at a, at a reservoir in, (laughs) on it, in this weird stump lake. And it was me and me and Ben McLemore, Ben, and me and Ben were, were driving a U-Haul. There were only three of us on set. So I don't know if you can call it set. It was me, Ben and Ryan, um, in the freezing cold rain. And we were driving back with a boat in a U-Haul, a, a wooden boat in a U-Haul. And he goes, Hey man, you, you were a baseball fan, right? Didn't re- he didn't really know that I was like kind of a diehard baseball fan growing up, but he goes, will you listen to this? And he had recorded like a scratch audio on his iPhone of a verse for a song called my oh my that he wrote in commemoration of Dave Niehaus. 
and he's like, yeah, and I want to do this. And he's like, do you think we could do a music video like super low key um, for this? And I was like, wow. absolutely. <laughs> and so like a week later, we for one hundred and sixty two dollars made another music video. And and I drove out to my parents house and got all my memorabilia from going to baseball games when I was a kid. And we I was like we and we shot my oh my and put it out. And both of those came out and did really well. Uh, and they said, directed by Jason Koenig. And, and then people were like, hey, you're a director. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm a photographer. <laughs> uh, and honestly, didn't didn't think anything of it. It was just fun I was having with friends. Uh, and, then, and, and then the Macklemore explosion happened. And Macklemore, they made the heist and the album blew up. Uh, yeah, so th- they then, then it came around that they were doing thrift shop and same love. And I had my biggest shoot. I had one photo shoot that I did every summer. That was like my best job of the year. And it was for Sonic America's drive-in and it was photo and video and paid me really well. And I was like, and those guys had never paid me. So it came around when they're like, we're doing two more music videos. And I was like, sorry guys, I can't do it that week. Um, so I, I turned those two videos down which is kind of kind of humorous, uh, and then and then very thankfully because it changed the course of my whole life when they when they were thrift shop was a huge hit and they were like we need a follow up and can't hold us had been out for a couple years and that we'd always talked about doing a video but we were like it's too big there's no money like we'd need to do something huge well all of a sudden they had a bit of a budget and they were like hey man can you come help with this and eight there were about eight of us on that, including my wife producing and Ben's wife and Hannah, who's produced most of my work. Um, and we went out and made can't hold us. And then all of a sudden we were on another, I was on another, I was actually on the Sonic job again the next summer. Uh, cause we made can't hold us in February and I was on the Sonic shoot and my phone started blowing up from people and they're like, look on the internet and, we got nominated for can't hold us got I myself and Ryan uh, got nominated for best editing. Um, and then all of us got edited, got nominated for uh, John, John Augustavo, myself and Ryan got nominated for best director. And then uh, I got nominated for best cinematography and got nominated for best hip hop video. So it was like, Holy crap at the VMAs. And we ended up winning best hip hop video and, and I won best cinematography. That's just, I bet you, your mind was just blown. Dude, growing up in the TRL (laughs) MTV era where you come home from school and watch music videos. And it was like, wait a minute, how did that happen? And so we went to the VMAs and, and won a couple VMAs and it was like, this is crazy. I guess I should take this seriously because this is like people work their whole career to get to any kind of accolade. And then that spring and, and then that following spring got nominated for best director at the Grammys. So got Grammy nominated for the same video. And you're like, this is nuts. So I was basically like, I should probably take this seriously and like learn how to be a director. Cause I don't know how to do that, but I, but I knew how to shoot. And that was the thing I had shot so much like day one of can't hold us was the first time I ever touched a cinema camera. I had a red, I had a red Epic on can't hold us. And it was literally the first time I'd touched a cinema camera. 
and I shot Can't Hold Us, and, and we won Best Cinematography for That's, it, which is crazy. That blows my mind. That's so incredible. And I think the one recurring theme I'm hearing really in your story that I'm really appreciating is you just kind of, you didn't, I mean, you set out with a plan, baseball, and then as things evolved and changed and there were some hurdles really in your life, you just kind of kept just pushing for the next thing. I love that you have an entrepreneurial spirit because I think a lot of people who may uh, see themselves as artists don't have drive and they don't necessarily innovate in terms of how can I make a living? How can I get to that next step that I'm looking for? And I love that you've always just kind of rolled with it and just pushed yourself to be the best at whatever you were focused on at the moment. And that's just kind of continued. And for me, for me, it was like, no, if I don't like, I'm either living with my parents in Belfair or I have to do something and I'm not good at anything. And so I got to, I got to hustle. And that's part of it. It's like, I, I had a conversation. This is a little bit of a side note tangent. Um, but there's a girl you should talk to on a podcast named Zoe Rain. And she, she was a girl that was in the photo class at Roosevelt High School when I was volunteering and talking about photography. And, and I, I asked her, I asked the teacher who her worst student was and like who was the biggest pain in the butt and like if I could take a kid off your hands and help him pass, who would it be? And she said, she pointed me at this kid and, and was like, if you can help him pass, like that would be amazing to me. And I, so I took this kid out and like, I was like, let's go do a photo. What are you into? He's like skateboarding. I'm like, cool, let's go to the skate park and I'll show you how to shoot skating. And this girl followed us around. Like she can't, he's like, can my girlfriend come? And she came and just like her hair was over her eyes. She was looking at the ground. Couldn't like, wouldn't talk to me and look me in the eye. And, and she was just really quiet and introverted and walked around and shot skate the skate park. And I was really working with him and tried to work with her, but it was a little awkward. And, and she was like shy and standoffish and didn't really know how to interact. And we came back into the class the next day and I was, and I helped him print their pictures. And I looked at his work and he thought his work was amazing and it was kind of crap. And her work was great. Her eye was great. And she thought it was terrible. Like she thought she just had no confidence and thought she wasn't any good. Um, but I kept working with this kid and she kept hanging around. I, she was just there whenever. And I'm like, he's, I'm like, what else do you, he's like, I love soccer. And I was like, who's, do, do you like the Sounders, which is the Seattle soccer team? And it was before they were MLS. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, what position do you play? He's like, I'm a goalie. And I'm like, who's your favorite player? And he goes, Chris Islander, who was the goalie at the time. And I was like, oh, uh, let's do a photo shoot. And I was like, let's do a photo shoot. And, and. This uh, it's a surprise. Just show up at the at the soccer field at Roosevelt after school on Saturday, and he walks on the field. and Chris Islander was a friend of mine, and Chris is in the goal. That's and I'm like, we're doing a photo shoot of Chris, and <laughs> Zoe like Zoe like lit up, and oh, I put my yeah. cameras in their hands. I put my cameras in their hands and played lighting assistant and like showed him how to take cool pictures. And again, his were crap, hers were great. <laughs> and That's I was amazing. like. I was like, and she kept hanging around. And then one day she came in and she was like, Hey, uh, I, I want to be a photographer. How do I do that? And I was like, and, and she kind of had a rough home life and there were some things going on. And, and I was like, do you want a job? And I hired her as my intern to sort wedding photos. And so she would sit in the office with Jenny and I, 
and sort wedding photos. But she when, when I hired her, I go, I'll hire you on one condition. You have to come in and talk to me for 45 minutes every day. <laughs> and I was like, I don't care what we talk about, but there are a million good photographers out there. It's about you being able to be personable and social and communicate well that's going to make you successful. And like, and showing up every day. So you show up every day and talk to me and, and I, and, and that's, that's the rules. And then you'll sort weddings and you'll learn how to shoot and whatever. She's, she's now, uh, arguably the top photographer in Chicago. And I, and I told her when she was, when she was 15, I was like, you're going to be Annie Leibowitz. And I, the crazy part is, I don't even think she's begun to tap into her potential oh, yet. Snap. I do have like a thought, a, a, a belief that I hold um, that I've just found to be true. When I run into artists, there's kind of, uh, commonly there's two perspectives on being good at something. And there's the people that are like, I'm good at this, this is my thing, and if I teach you how to do it, then it's more competition for me, so I'm not teaching you how to do it. I'm holding my cards close to the chest and like, I can't, there's, there's not room for both of us at the top. Um, and a lot of people hoard what they're good at and try to like squeeze it and protect it. And I, and, and then there's other people that are just like, give it away and they're just teaching. And I have found, and I can't explain this at all. It has just been true in my life. And I would encourage anyone who is an aspiring artist or a successful artist to give this a try. Cause it's just, it's just been true for me for the last 15 years. If I give away what I know freely, somehow it opens up space and I get better Cons consistently. It's like, if I teach a kid how to do something, somehow I'm better the next time I see them. Like it, it just, it's like, it's like you fill up your hands with some talent and you hand it off to the side instead of pulling it into your chest and hoarding it, you hand it away to, to people around you, whether that's an intern or a kid on set or whatever, um, or, or you go find an outlet to teach somebody and help somebody with what you've learned how to do, it just opens up space for you to be better. And I would say that has like been one of the biggest parts of my evolution as an artist is giving away what I've learned how to do. And I don't understand why it works, but it does. I had this conversation with Zoe and I've had a handful of apprentices over the year, over the years. Um, and this is, this is a conversation I've had with a few of them when they start being artists and start being a little successful and they're like, man. And then they inevitably hit a wall where they're like, I can't pay my rent. Like, what do I do? How do I, how do I start making money at this? And I realized that one of my traits that I got from my childhood that was probably the most valuable part of, of my upbringing is my parents were crazy enough to let me like they would, and I was the youngest, but I had my brother that was, I was, I was 11. My brother was 13. Uh, and then we had another friend that was 16 and another friend that was 12. And the four of us would, we'd ride to work with my mom who worked in Bremerton. She'd put us on the ferry at seven in the morning and all summer long. And we would, we would go over with our backpacks full of baseball cards and we would go up the hill and we'd go to the hotel where the players stayed, or we'd go wait outside the stadium and we'd go get autographs. And, and it was the weirdest experience. We would go get autographs and it taught me this thing that it's like, 
anybody that like you can go if if I want to go get go get in front of Cal Ripken Jr. I can do that as an 11 year old. Like these are my hero. If I want to go find Alex Rodriguez, I can do that and and get and get his autograph. Like it was like there was this thing where it was almost a sport to us, and we tried to get everybody in Major League Baseball's autograph, and we did. And so it taught me that like you can go chase something and you can you can pull it off if you hustle. And it was crazy that like we would go over and have uh, we would have five dollars each, and the ferry to get home was two fifty, and uh, pinto beans and cheese at Taco Bell was a dollar fifty. So we had one dollar. You had one dollar of buffer, and we'd go at seven in the morning with five dollars and no ticket to the baseball game, and we would get. And we've, we figured out how to sneak into the game. We figured out how to hustle our way into the game. We figured out how to sweet talk our way into the game, like befriend people, befriend people that had an extra ticket. And then when we got into the game, we had like crappy seats. So we'd go sit in the, in like the best seats in the house, right by the dugout. There were like the owner's box. And I got kicked out of the seats by George Steinbrenner when I was 12 years old. <laughs> and that didn't deter me. Oh, my uh, goodness. That, that didn't deter me. The next week, I went back again, and I was – and I got and, – and they were playing the Cleveland Indians, and I got kicked out. I was like – the person came down that had the corner seat in by the dugout, and it was Omar Vizquel's wife, who was the shortstop for the Indians. And my friends got kicked out, but, like, I chatted her up a little bit, and she's like – well, I have one extra ticket, so you can sit here. So I'm sitting in the best seat in the house, and she's like, do you want to come tomorrow? And she gave me tickets to the whole series. And, I mean, it was just like those details happened all the time. It was like I, I got arrested when I was 13 years old. I don't know if you can really call it arrested. But I for, <laughs> for sitting in the Mariners' dugout during batting no practice. No way. Because I, I snuck into the stadium and no one was in there and this like little league team walked out on the field and it was just the Mariners practicing and these these kids walked out on the field and were standing right and I was sitting in the bleacher watching. There's no one else in the stadium, just the field lights are on, and these kids come and stand kind of right next to me and I ask them like, What are you doing here? And they go, Oh, well, we're our we're from the Hillsboro baseball team in in Oregon and it was the second school shooting was at Hillsboro and one of the baseball players got shot and he lived, but the baseball coach was Griffey's Nike agent. And so he brought the team up to meet the Mariners and I'm a kid that's their age. And I go, can I jump down there with you? And I did. And I'm on the, now I'm on the field with the Mariners, like oh meeting goodness. players. <laughs> and I did. had a, I had a photo. <laughs> yeah. And I had a photo that I wanted to get signed that I had like on a clipboard slipped under my shirt. And I'm this little fat kid with a backpack on. Um, <laughs> And and my and my baseball hat, and I'm sitting in the dugout waiting for the players to come up, and uh, and like I'm gonna get their autograph, and the security guard from the clubhouse, because we were always sneaking into stuff, totally recognized me and like grabbed my arm and put handcuffs on me and took me to this little back room, and it and I was like I gave him a fake name, and I'm like I'm freaking 13, 14 years old. What are you gonna do to me? I snuck into a baseball game, and. But it was like this this bit of like boldness and fearlessness and like learning how to, and talk, talking to adults and communicating with people and figuring out a way to get into the baseball game, figuring out a way to get that person's autograph, figuring out a way to like w to figuring out the line of like when somebody says no to you, does that mean no or can you push it a little bit? And, and what I what all that equates to is the word hustle. And I feel like artists don't know how to hustle.
and they have too much ego to hustle. And you're like, man, hustle. If somebody wants to pay you to do something, do it and learn from it and do it the best you can and try to outdo yourself every time you, you create that piece of art and look at art that's better than yours and aspire to be that and, and like hustle, work at it, go figure out how to do it, want something and go get it and, and be, be thought. And, and the thing that was great that I think came from the way my, my parents raised me and like this, this, uh, what, what I think some people do that hustle is they cross the line. So either they don't hustle at all or they they don't hustle at all or they cross the line and they don't know when they should should stop. And and it was like we it was such a perfect experience because we're little kids chasing our heroes that are baseball players. That's pretty freaking innocent. And we knew it was like we are not hurting anybody. And that was the line. It's like, is this is this making anybody uncomfortable? Is this hurting anybody? Is this, is this wronging anybody? And we never cross that line. And I think that's the key to hustle. It's like hustle has, hustle has to be in the best interest of not just you, but the people around you. Like don't, if you don't have something to offer, don't hustle yourself into the position. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and, and I think if I were to say to like, I don't know if any kids listen to this or younger people, but if you do, it's like, I'm dead serious. When I said work on your relationships and work on your character that's going to get you farther than your talent. Like a lot of people have talent. They don't have character. And, and I would add to hustle, like learn how to hustle and learn how to hustle respectfully and, and like honorably hustle and then, and, and learn how to serve, like be a servant. Like if you're in the creative world and this is where I think a lot of creatives miss it, they think it's about them. But in reality, you're serving your own pretty much anything you're getting paid for. You're serving somebody else's brand or somebody else's event or somebody else's thing. It's like if you're painting something and putting it in their building, you're serving that building. If you're shooting the photos, you're serving that person. It's like if you come at it from the approach of going, it's not about the art you it, it's not only about the art you want to make. It's about like handling with care this job you've been entrusted with and like your job and your goal should be to serve them in the best way that you can. That's going to get you really far because a lot of people don't have that mindset. And whether I'm with, whether I'm with a, a, a high school senior when I'm 18 years old, it's like, I want to take the best photo I can for you because it matters to you. Or if I'm shooting, uh, if I'm shooting a wedding, I'm like, when I shot weddings forever, it's like, my, I want to make great art for me, for sure. I'm going to try to push my portfolio uh, for sure. But my number one goal is to make you feel beautiful and to capture your day even better than it is in reality. Because this is your memories and I'm here to serve you and I'm going to work my butt off for you even if I'm not enjoying the process. And then and then you get all the way up to like, I'm working with a, a, a the biggest pop star on the planet and it's the same thing. I'm sitting there shooting Shape of You and I'm going, my job is to serve this song, to serve this record label who's putting money into making this video. My job is to make the best piece of art I possibly can for them. My, my, my job is to write something that aligns with and, and strengthens the artist's brand. And then at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's the, funny, the funniest thing was, it's a senior picture session from when I was 18. My, my number one job, 
here's Ed who doesn't love being on camera and doesn't, he's like, I don't, he's like, I'm not a, he, he's, he infamously says he's, he's, he thinks it's hilarious that he was like on the sexiest people list. Cause he's like, I'm not attractive. And, and this is how he feels about himself. And I'm like, it is my job to make you look as cool and good as I possibly can. Just like I would any person at any point in that process and make you feel good while we're doing it and make you trust me that what I'm making is going to be serving and honoring every this opportunity and everything about what, what you're trying to do is more important than what I'm trying to do. And I'm telling you, if you can have a servant's mindset and a, a, uh, a creative confidence and a hustle, you'll get really far if you don't have too much ego to take on a job. And you, and you, and you have, and you don't have ego, like you can collaborate because your ego is not getting in the way. Serve the cause of what you're working on. Serve the project. There's a budding artist. Um, she's getting a little bit of attention. Um, and she asked me to, to concept some visual art ideas for her EP. And I've never done that before. I'm, I'm an illustrator, um, but this is new to me. And so um, I have felt so much stress and pressure, but like also the mixed in with excitement because I wanted to do her justice. And it got me to thinking, I can only imagine as you've collaborated with um, artists over these last few years, that there's a, probably a similar feeling when you are entrusted with a project <laughs> and you want to do it justice and you want it to be great, not only for your own legacy, but also for theirs. Um, how do you handle those beginning stages of a project when you when you find out that you've been uh, chosen to to take it on? The process you're talking about is um, with a new artist and they're just like, I need you to do this. My process these days, most of the time, like I was saying earlier on, is that I'm uh, if I get to that point where they're choosing me, I've already done the creative. So it's like my creative is done and, uh, and, and I now have to figure out how to execute it, which is the pressure. You're like, crap, I wrote this cool thing. Now, how do I pull it off? Um, and, and, and in that, that's part of the learning process of writing too, where you're like, I'm not going to write something that I can't do. And, but, but at the same time, I want to push myself out of my comfort zone to keep evolving and growing as an artist, but I, I need to write something I can execute for that budget and that time frame. Um, the power of working with a new artist, like what you're talking about is a lot of times what they have as a resource that the bigger the artist gets, the less it is available is time. So you can do a lot of cool things if you have time for not very much money. If you go, this artist is available for this day and these hours, and that's it, that limits what I can do creatively a lot. And it makes it cost more money because everything's got to be perfect when they walk on set. So that doesn't really answer your question. What I will say is that that like fear that you're having and like anxiety and, and like, oh my gosh, how do I, how do, like you said, how do I do this justice? Um, I tend to weigh things uh, as a bit of a value proposition. And one of my favorite parts about directing, which we haven't even gotten into, that's kept me directing and made me want to pursue it, is I realized on my first proper set, which was a video called Arrows, which you should watch because it's awesome, uh, and, and no one has watched it, uh, 
compared to my other work, but I, I absolutely love it. It's one of the more artistic things I've done. Um, it's called Arrows, it's Fences featuring Macklemore. But on that set, I had, I had a crew of about 60 people uh, that were proper film crew people, and we were in a warehouse, and there were all these set builds and, and, uh, and big green screens in this world that was only existing in my head. And I realized on that set, uh, I was co-directing with a photographer that I really respect named John Keatley, who's got an amazing visual sense. And he hadn't really done video before. And I had done a handful. Um, but we were collaborating. And it was this realization I had on set. One day, I was like, these people all have a job because of my idea. And that is worth something. Like me having a crazy idea and being willing to try to do this even though it's it's harder and bigger or whatever than I'm probably should be doing, this this is giving people a job for a week. It's putting a lot of money into the economy of my city, and and like I'm giving the opportunity to people to to be creative and do what they want to do. Um, and and I took that as like a a bit of a mantle of responsibility that I was like, if I'm going to do this, it's it's bigger than me this is about building a team and building a community of people. And, and that's been one of the things that's driven me past that creative anxiety. So I weigh this, this every time a job comes in, I go, okay, if I get this job, I get to hire all these people I care about. And, and if, and, and I even lean into them, I'm like, Oh, they would be awesome for this. They're really good at this. I'm not. But if I can get this, if I can write to their strengths, then so it's like knowing who the resources are around you and going i'm going to write to the strengths that i have it's like if you have a friend that owns a hotel write something for that hotel <laughs> like if you got a friend like think about what you have access to especially if you're on the like lower budget end of things think about the the resources that you have think about the town you grew up in the city that you live in the what what people you know around you that you can pull resources from because you can make work that looks like you had a huge budget um, when, when you don't. So I, I guess that is not totally answering your question, no, but I always is. go, I always, and, and part of the thing that is a bit of a blessing and a curse to me is that I do take that responsibility you're talking about with just about every artist I work with because I started working with Mac Moore and Ryan Lewis and they were friends. It was like, I was like, this has to be great for them. I, I, I care a lot about their brand and how they come across and how they look and how they, they're communicated to the world. I care about that deeply. And it was the same thing with Ed, who I'd been friends with for, for three years before we did any work together. Um, it was like, man, I got to do this thing justice for him. I got to do this song justice. My job is to make the song better with the visual and bolster the song. Um, and so I, I absolutely carry the pressure of that where I'm like, I want to do this justice and I want to do this in a way that, that holistically feels like a win for everybody. And the, the downside of that is you kind of have to be the jerk sometimes. Cause as much as you want to include, you want to include everybody and give everybody a voice and let them all go to their strengths. At the end of the day, if you're the one directing it, it falls on you. And so you're like, sorry guys, I, I'm doing it my way. I love your input, but we're doing it my way because at the end of the day, no one is going to criticize you over this. They're going to criticize me. 
so, so there is that it's is the, that is the sword. back yes. the double edged sword of collaborating. But I, um, I certainly find that maturing as a creative very much means finding people that are better than you at things. And I'm I'm continuously in the pursuit of that. I'm like, who can I find that's a better DP than me? It's a better shooter than me. Who can I find that's a better editor than me? Who can I find that's a better colorist than me? Who can I find that's a better, like, you just find people that are better than you at it and, and build a team because yeah. they'll make you better. That's amazing. Do you find that, do you try to build relationships with these folks if you spot someone that you think is really good or do you just use their work as sort of inspiration and motivation? Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's both. It's like you, you, you look through people's work and if I see something, there's things that I look for that are really particular to my style and my approach. And I'm like, Oh, they use the tools I use. They, they seem to move as quickly as I do or something like it. And, and that's, I'll look at the, I'll look for certain things and then give them a shot. And if, if it works out, keep trying to use them. And, and you, in the beginning of our conversation, you alluded to the fact that of course, you're super, super involved in directing the production process, but you also are doing a lot of writing these days. You're coming up with ideas. You're putting them on paper. When you're in those beginning stages, especially for, for music videos, do you try to smash a story into lyrics or do you kind of use the lyrics just as a suggestion? Um, how, what's your typical approach to that? Um, I tend to put the song on repeat in my world for way too long and listen to it hundreds of times and 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 like i'll i'll write on my ipad i'll just have and i'll I'll write down notes of whatever um whatever sparks and sometimes it's the lyrics sometimes it's the production and just the tone almost like it's the background of a movie i'm like what movie would this be used in and and you you go what what are the things that do i hear a sound that makes me think of something or is this lyrical? And then if I can marry those together. And, and I think one of the big things that I learned early on and with Macklemore and Ryan, and it was great, was that like be unexpected. Fit, like create something that fits really well, but that n- most people would have never even thought of for the video. And, and I think a lot, of, a lot of my work fits that bill where there's something about it that's unexpected and but it's unexpected in a way that you're like that makes sense and so looking for what that is is part of the process um it's interesting like shape of you came out of uh the ed Sheeran video came out of out of I, I wrote i wrote a music video for a song on on divide ed's album called nancy mulligan that was a love story about his grandparents meeting in ireland in the 40s and i wrote this music video we went and scouted this video he wanted to do it the label ended up uh, not wanting to do it and, and kind of kiboshing the idea. But he called me later and was like, hey, I want to do it started with a bare knuckle boxing fight. And he goes, I want to do the boxing thing. He called me, he goes, I want to do the boxing thing. And, and he's like, and I want to fight a sumo wrestler. <laughs> and that ends up that at the was, end of the video. Yes. <laughs> and, and that those were those were like my two notes. And he's like. Uh, and, and it was interesting because at first I, I, he, and then he sent me the song before it was out and he's like, and I was like, man, boxing, does boxing work with this? And I heard the dun, 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 dun. 
And it was like, oh man, I totally see the rocky tippy toes and the boxing punches like hitting in rhythm with this. This will totally work. And that was where like the training came from. And then I was like, there was no girl in it originally. And I'm like, I'm writing this into a love story because it has to tie in some way to the theme of the song. And so wrote the narrative around it. And there was one other scene that he didn't like and he cut it. So I sent, I wrote it in one night and sent it back to him like eight hours after he called me, uh, sent it to the label. And then they, they, uh, they killed one scene cause they, they, it was a, it was a hint at the sumo wrestler. He's like, no, I want that to be a total surprise. So, so we had to write a new middle. Um, and, and we, he called me on that on the 31st of November and he, he had backed out of a music video. He was supposed to be shooting on the first for it with his director that had directed a bunch of stuff. And the label was like, you have to shoot this in the next two weeks or it messes up your whole album release and, and your directors are not available. So he's like, what do you want to do? And he, and Ed's told the label, call Jason, he'll figure it out. Cause we, we'd been friends and he called and you want to talk about, you want to talk about the like fear and pressure. It was like, you have to shoot this in the next nine and you have to shoot this in the next nine days. Right before. Yeah. It will. And the, just the way the process works with um, labels and production companies and insurance and legal and all these things, the job, we didn't get the job awarded like officially until three days before the shoot. So we, I was like, screw it. Ed's my friend and I'm going to, and I'm going to just grind on this. And so I was like, location scouting and finding a sumer like we were me and hana were just going at it and, and my wife we were just like attacking this thing before the job even awarded so that it was possible and then by the time the job got awarded we were like we were like yep we're good let's do it but it was super it was it was an interesting one because it was like this is a bad idea he was like this is a bad idea we don't have time and, it, and but it was this it was this value proposition where it was like I don't know that there's anybody else that's going to put more care in it, care into it than I will for my friend. And, and I was like, at, at minimum, even if we mess it up, um, I, I personally, like all of our crew gets paid right before Christmas, even if it's not great. Um, and, and I was like, worst case scenario, he doesn't work with me again. The label doesn't want to work with me again, but I, but I'm like, put a camera in my hands and I can shoot something that's that's as good as most. And I look and I look through all his old music videos, and a couple of them are amazing, but some of them are just kind of like, oh, that was whatever. And I was like, I can hit the whatever mark. I'm like, I know I can hit the that was that was fine. And, and and all my crew gets paid right before Christmas. We get union days in Seattle before Christmas, and and I made them come to Seattle because I was like, there's no way I can pull this off in another city in this timeline. So they. They came to Seattle and and we cast it and designed it and found locations and did all the stuff and he got here and we shot it in a couple days and and it was like this is a win this is a huge win for everybody but I absolutely felt the pressure of the risk and if there's no risk generally small risk small reward big risk big reward and and I felt the risk and I was like you know what it's worth taking because. At worst, everybody in my crew gets paid, and I have another name on my on my resume, even if it's not a great piece. 
and it ended up being a great piece and I haven't made a bad one yet. So I had that going. I was like, I was like, I know I'm going to have, I know I'm going to make a, make a, a turd at some point, but I haven't yet. So I'm going to keep leaning into that. And we made it. And it's now the second most viewed music video of all time. Second most, second most viewed piece of content on YouTube. That ever. is incredible. Speaking of so, Ed, I would love to talk a little bit about Galway Girl because I am obsessed with that piece. Can we talk a little bit about how you came up with the idea and and was it create was that another crazy one to execute? It's just I I just love it so much. Ed, Shape of You broke the internet. Like Shape of You <laughs> blew up. It was getting 12 million views a day. The song itself was getting played like crazy. It was number 1 for uh, for three months, it was number one. And on on Billboard, on Spotify, on everything, it was the most streamed song of the year. It was massive. And and his album release was, his album went to number one. All the songs went to number one. Uh, like they were the top, I think it was like the top 14 songs on Billboard the week it came out were all his songs. And then they changed the Billboard rules because that had never happened before. And it was like, this is he is saturated and and then he was like he was on gq he was on rolling stone he was on all these magazine covers he was everywhere and when you are a celebrity and you get to that point people start taking shots at you and it was the first time in his career as the love playing guitar on the stage and and wooing people with his amazing voice and like stage presence which he has he was always the underdog and everybody was like, I love this guy. How do you not know this? And then all of a sudden he was at the top and he started like the, the critics came out and started taking shots at him. And while that was happening, it was the first negative press really that on the mainstream level that he'd ever gotten. And, and it was, and part of that was around the song Galway girl. He was getting written there. Like he's not Irish. He doesn't like what is the song he's trying to appropriate Irish culture. And, and it was like and he had told me during Shape of You that he, he actually told me before Shape of You that that was the song he wanted me to direct. And he had it. He had an idea for it. And the idea, unfortunately, leaned into a lot of those accusations not, and like not real. But it was like, we can't do that. If we do that, they're going to they're going to just kill you. Um for it and and so it was this weird thing where you're trying to promote a song and he it was like you're oversaturated and he had never wanted to be he'd only been in thinking out loud in shape of you of all his music videos those were the only two he'd ever like been in the whole time he usually would just be in for one shot and so he's like uh there was this big conversation around like do i be in the music video do i not He's like, I was never in the videos before. And he's like, I feel a little bit overexposed with all this press and whatever. Um, and these magazine covers and being number one, he's like, do, do I need to be in it? And, and we had this call and I was like, you know, honestly, I think if you're in it, you're, if you're not, if you're not in it, your fans are going to be, your fans are going to be bummed and you're going to hear about it. If you, if you are in it, your critics are going to hate on it and it's not going to do well. And so I was like, I like your idea, but I think we should do a different idea. I was like, what if I was like, what if I can come up with a video that you're in and not in at the same time? <laughs> That's so brilliant. <laughs> and, and he, he had told me, he had told me, he was like, 
I knew he was going to propose to Cherry, his fiance. And he, he, he had, he had told me that. And he's like, I wrote perfect for her. It's the most important song on the album. It's the, it's the one that I care about the most. And the video has got to be great. And I, I was like, here's the problem. This was the other part of it. I was like, we can't do shape of you with you and a girl, Galway girl with you and a girl. And then, and then perfect with you and a girl. But we also can't not do that. Cause that's what all three songs are. So I was like, how do we do this in a way that that sets up perfect to be what it can be and and to be like ready for perfect? It was like paving the way for perfect because I'm like, we can't make three of the same video. This will be visually different enough. And and so I wrote this POV video and there had never been done a, a stabilized like a gimbal no one had ever done a gimbal POV before where it was all smooth. Let's do it. <laughs> and then the technology didn't exist. There, there was no camera and, and it's complicated, but there was no camera that could be used on a professional shoot that could do what it needed, what needed to be done on a gimbal. Cause basically this will get a little techie for people. You need something you can pull focus on, which, which means it has to be a big enough rig that you can attach a focus pull um, or have an autofocus mechanism or something. You also need you also need to be able to plug in uh, a feed. So you have to be able to run a wire into the camera so that the so that the client that the label that the managers whatever can see what we're shooting. And it needs to be small enough that it can be. So it's got to be big enough to have those things and small enough that he can wear it because we strapped it to Ed's chest and he shot it. Um, and that piece of technology didn't exist. So we had to design this crazy vest and like piecemeal a bunch of different parts of it. It was actually the most expensive camera package I've ever used. And it ended up being shot on a, it ended up being shot on a, a Sony a 6,300, which is like a $3,000 camera, which is nothing. But the whole rig, like we had to design, we had to do like research and development design on this chest rig thing. So that was that was interesting and had its own issues. But then the idea behind the video was that because there was this questionability of like, does Ed know Ireland and is he from here? And he grew up as Irish and British and he would go in the summers to Ireland and all of his cousins are from Ireland. All of his family's from Ireland. And like he grew up going to Ireland all the time. And the first time he ever the first time he ever played music was in Galway on the corner with of the white like shop busking. The first time he ever busked was in in Galway. So it was like this is a super true to him song. Uh, wrote details in that only the Irish would appreciate. And if you're Irish and you watch that video, there are like 40 cameos of Irish celebrities <laughs> in that thing that you don't know. And oh, and like every amazing. little detail, every little detail is like a love letter to Ireland. Oh. And so we designed it to be this thing that was like, nah, I'm Irish. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's so, a, you know, I honestly wasn't even aware of the controversy and that's just fascinating to know. And I love it. I love it. And it wasn't, it wasn't a big controversy, but it, it was like, it was actually kind of a, it was a, well, and this is the thing. It was like a passing article. It wasn't like mainstream big, but to him, he's like, no, I am Irish. It's like if somebody told me I'm not from, if, if somebody told me I'm not from Seattle because I'm from Belfair, and I'm like, no, I'm from Seattle. I spent all the, 
And I'm like, I have to prove. So I think it mattered to him as much as it mattered to anybody else. He's just like, no, I want, I want them to know I love and respect their culture. And it's part of me, not that I'm trying, like, you know what I mean? So I think it mattered a lot to him and it, therefore it mattered a lot to me. And, and we shot it in one night and it was super fun. And, and it's the little nuggets that made it. I'm, I'm glad you liked that video because I think it's super fun and different than most things. But the, one of my favorite parts that I'll touch on for one second, the girls, there's a group of Kaylee dancers that are girl, these, these like high school teenage girls on the street that run by. And there's this reaction. And a lot of people are like, wait a minute, how, was that real? How did they do that? And, and what we did, so those girls made a video And they put it on YouTube the day that Ed posted on Instagram his track list, like the names of the songs on his album. And they did a Kaylee Irish dance to Shape of You, which was one of the only songs out um, when he posted. And he goes, this is we are your Galway girls. This is our audition tape. And they put it on Instagram or they put it on YouTube and it got like seven million views. These Kaylee Irish dancers dancing and going, we're your Galway girls. So when we got to Galway, we found I like we we were we had local friends there. Um, Colin Barry helped us produce it there, and he's from Galway, and and he's been a friend from for a long time, and he's a friend of the Macklemore camp, and booked their first shows in Ireland. So he's like, yeah, I can get to the teacher. So he got to their teacher at the 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 school for Kaylee dance, the Irish school of Kaylee dancing. Got to their teacher and was like, we can't tell them what's happening but we need them to be here. You can know. So they told the teacher that it was a, uh, we told the teacher that it was, or we told the teacher to tell them it was a app. It was a travel app commercial for an American travel. We needed to do, and that Saoirse Ronan was was starring in it and that that she was going to run around the corner and they would just run by them when they're Kaylee dancing. And it's, it's an Irish app about, tourism in Gal- like Galway is one of the places they're doing. <laughs> so when we ran around the corner, they were like, wait, what? And they had no, no idea kidding. Ed was there. Oh my God. And so, so that reaction is like totally Genuine. real. And oh. I, I had, I had a, uh, I had an Ed Sheeran. I had the, the Rolling Stone in my bag or in my hand. Like I'd had it in my bag that day and was like, I, I wanted him to, so you could again see him in the video a little bit. So I pulled it out and handed it to the girl that was off camera to the right. She oh ran around and got excited. That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's one of my favorite parts of that oh, thing. But man. we took, we took over goal and we tried to keep it super secretive the whole day that we were filming. And like it was, there was nothing like super secretive. We were shoot, we shot the first bar during the daytime and blacked it out, which is actually the second bar in the video. Um, we, we blacked out the windows and it was, so it looked like night and we shot this scene and we walked outside and there were like 4,000 kids outside. No way. You're like, so so much for that. (laughs) Yeah. So it was, it was an interesting, uh, interesting process. It was really fun. And we ran around and it was great. That's amazing. Yeah. So I've uh, I've read a couple of interviews um, with you, Jason, and I've noticed that you there's been some references to kind of a dark year in your creative career, which I'm sure was no fun to go through. But at the same time, I think it's it's relatable for a lot of creatives. Can you talk a little bit about that time and and how you uh, managed to sort of dig your way out of that and, and what it was like? 
Yeah. Uh, first, I have to say that, that there's something that happens when you get into the world of being interviewed, and and I've felt I've they dramatize it a lot. I'm like, I saw that, and it was clearly clickbait. Uh, the the dark that. period of your life was clickbait, which I'd seen <laughs> with other art, with like bigger, important music artists. That you're like, that's not what they said. But it was very much a dramatized headline. However, what I did say is that after Can't Hold Us, after we won the VMAs, um, after winning VMAs and going to the Grammys, I had the most creatively insecure year of my life. I had not been, I had never really had creative insecurity because I'd never really had the spotlight on me. It was always like, keep making good stuff. And then I had this feeling once we had this hit, I was like, man, is that it? Did I just peak? Like, is this ever going to happen again? Are we ever going to get back here? And, and I'm like really analytical and started thinking it through and going, you know what, Re realistically, I'm not ever going to get back here because even if you make great work for the rest of your career, uh, and I, and then you have to write the right video for the right song off the right album with the right act in the right year. Like literally you could work with the Jay-Z's and the Justin Timberlake's and the biggest artists in the world and it'll never happen. So it, that's what was interesting is it's like, it's lightning in a bottle. And what I think I came to at the end of that is it, it, this process of being like, oh my gosh, I, I won something that was bigger than I, my capabilities. And I don't know that I'll be able to repeat that I, I leveled out at a place where it was like, you know what? I am, that's a dumb goal to shoot for. It's not worth shooting for. What is a great goal to shoot for is that I, I try to make work that is worthy of winning an award. Whether it gets nominated or not doesn't matter, but it's like, I want to make work that's as good or better than the work that did win an award. And, and if it, if it, people recognize it, whatever, I want to be proud of everything I make. And so that's kind of how it leveled out. And, 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 and then the other part was going, making the commitment to myself that I was going to try to learn and become better and like really learn this industry and go, I made can't hold us with eight other people. Like we made can't hold us as a collaborative group of friends in, in a scenario that like no record label in the world could have reproduced. We made that thing for, we made that thing for like a hundred thousand dollars and Rolling Stone wrote it up as a $3 million video. You're like, we, we were a group of friends that were hustling and making this thing that was way too, no label ever would have signed off on that idea. It, we shot, we shot for 17 days. I'm like, so basically I went, I'm going to try to learn how to do this in a way that I can make something that's as good as that in the way that the record or in the way that the, that the film industry works. So I have to learn the film industry and I have to learn how to tell a visual story and I have to learn, I have all these instincts that are good. Now I have to actually like study and practice and learn and watch and ask questions and try to learn how to be better than I am and, and polish this off. And I got offered right away to sign with production companies in LA after can't hold us. And I said, no. And I said, no, for th three years, I was like, I have to learn how to do this first until I can recreate can't hold us in the proper way. I don't want that to be the expectation on me. And so I, I, you know, I, I consider myself extremely lucky, blessed, whatever you want to call it, that I had Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, uh, without them, I don't have a career and I got to stay with them and keep doing creative things. And they, 
they didn't have it, it was like we came up with stuff and we made it because they they are they're in they're an independent act they don't have a record label that's that's worried about the risk because it's just them and it's their money and it's their time and it's their creative and we're collaborating on stuff so they're part of the process and, and we would write things together and then go do it and I got to learn I got to go to film school on their projects essentially and and I think that was an amazing, amazing opportunity that has changed the whole course of my life. And in the process, got really good. And, and the culmination of that, I think, was downtown. And we made downtown in, in Spokane, and it was like, this thing is, this is this is one of the best videos ever. This is way better than Can't Hold Us. This is, I mean, it's hard it's hard to watch that video and not go, damn, that is a masterpiece of a video. And we and we did it all in the proper way. And, and it was like, that was a, that was a set with 2000 extras on it and a hundred crew on it. And we shot for six days and permitted shutting down a city and had like 200 vehicles. It was like, this thing is a monster (laughs) and six artists. It was like, this is a monster. And we, and, and we executed it and it was excellent. And it, and then that was the funny thing is I was like, got to the place where I was super secure and like, I don't know, we don't need to win anything again. Like (laughs) these are great arrows was arrows was great. We've made great stuff. I tried to make one good thing every year and just keep getting better. And then we made downtown and then it won, uh, the Europe. So there's the EMAs, which is the European VMAs. And they only have one video. They only have one video award and it's video of the year. And we won video of the year for downtown. So it was like, Oh, that's cool. (laughs) And, and, and the crazy thing is with that perspective being like, this isn't about awards and I'm not trying to like, yeah. I just want to make good work. And we went to the VMAs for the fourth time two weeks ago and was, I was nominated for best director and best pop video for perfect. That's so, so incredible. When I watch each of your videos, they all have their own flavor and obviously you're collaborating. So they're each going to feel a little bit different and you're always pushing yourself to the next level I'm curious, is there kind of like an, uh, something that you always keep in mind when you're writing something? Is there a feeling that you want people to have as they're watching your videos in general? Um, I've noticed there's kind of like a lighthearted, fun feeling to a lot of them. But do you kind of just go in to each of them uniquely? Or do you always have sort of a brand um, that you have in mind? I have, I, I think it's a marrying of my voice and the artist's voice is what I'm trying to hit. But I have some, I have some strong opinions that I think um, show in all of my work and, and it is my voice coming through. And, and it's just something that I'm like, this is my observation on culture. Most people like we live in a, in a technologically addicted day and most people escape through their phones and they're trying to, um, they're trying to get away. And I'm like, man, if you're watching this is, this might be a, a, I think it's true, but it might be an overstep. I don't know if you're sitting watching music videos on your phone, you're probably not, you're probably not incredibly happy. Like people, we have depression as an epidemic in our culture and, and people feel numb as there's a growing, like relationships exist in technology, not person to person, face to face. And there's, there's a, we kind of are living a life more and more devoid of emotion. And so to me, when I make a music video, I want it to feel human and I want to tap into an emotion and make you feel uh, almost I'm, I'm trying to disconnect you from your phone. 
I'm trying to connect you to something that is, that is deeper than that and make you feel. Um, and, and so that's a baseline. And then I also, so many videos, um, and so many, just so much of, of, of content in general is, is like low hanging fruit. It's either titillating or like slapstick or like it's, it's all these things where you go, it's the, it's the microwave version of a well-cooked meal kind of thing. And, and, and I, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but it's like, if I show you a half naked person, you're going to have an emotional response, but it's not, it's not a rich one. If I show, if I, if I, if I, if I make fun, make you laugh, but at the expense of somebody else, it's not a rich experience. It's like, these are, this is the, and so I think part of, um, my outlook and my mindset is like each video has the ability to bring you into this world that you'll feel something. And like on downtown, the whole goal was to make you smile. <laughs> I was like, if I can make if my goal, if I, if I can make you smile through an entire, through three minutes, it's going to change your day. If you literally there's, there's physiological scientific evidence that if you smile for three minutes a day, your day will be better. So I'm like, if I can, if I can keep you engaged. So the way that I write is, can I keep you engaged for the length of a song? That's the number one goal. Can I write something that is going to keep you engaged? And I was told by people at YouTube that I have one of the highest and my, my videos have one of the highest uh, click through rates. Like people watch it all the way through of any stuff on YouTube, which is really cool. And, and there is, there's a method behind that, that I, that I use when I write to something, the way I design a story. But, but uh, and part of that is what you were saying earlier, where it was like every single image could be stopped and be a photograph on its own. I'm like, yeah, you could press mute and it would be, it would pull you through just the imagery itself would pull you through and then trying to stitch a story in there that you could understand if the song was off and then you add the song as a layer to that. And it is even more compelling. And I'm like, if you can watch it, if you could listen to the song through without a visual, if, because the song's good, if you could watch the video through just even out of order, even if you just, it's like the imagery itself would keep you captivated even if I took it out of order and then I put it in order and the visual will tell you a story with or without the audio, then I think, and keep you engaged. I think that's, that's my approach. And the other thing that I really, I really try hard to do that is, is really abnormal within the music video space. Um, and, and only when artists ask me for, for something different, do I Mm -hmm. do it different? But I try to never repeat a shot. So like, in the perfect music video, you don't come back to the same shot once in can't hold us in can't hold us. You pretty much, you only return once when Ben wanted to come back to the camel shot, uh, in, in downtown, the only shot that you see more than once is the dude up on the balcony with the Afro and Ben wanted that because it was, because he thought it was funny and it was funny. Um, but, but I try to keep new visuals the entire time to keep you engaged. That's one of the things that I do. So there's like 350 unique shots in perfect. And I think that's really rare. That's not how people do music videos. And I find that when I watch music videos, most of the time I come back, like I watch two minutes and then they start reusing performance takes and I get, I get bored as soon as they do that. So trying to keep the visual moving the whole time, keep fresh visuals the whole time, keep every visual really cinematic and photographic 
because that's my background and then and then draw out human emotion that are deeper than um, the the easy the low hanging fruit. I'll give you one example of that that was kind of interesting. I had the record label and um, I had the record label and my production company were like, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And and they're like, that doesn't make sense. Like, why did you do that on Shape of You before it came out? And I was just like, because it's what I wanted to do. I didn't even give them the explanation because I didn't want to go into it. I was like, I, I think I said, it's just the way the schedule worked out. I think I said, it's just the way the schedule worked out. But in reality, it was, it was very intentional that in the back of the cab, when, when, when Ed and Jenny P, um, our amazing female lead in Shape of You, leave, they go on the date during the day in the diner. They go on this little date and everybody, everybody asked me, they're like, why didn't they go on a date at night? By having him, his hand on her hand in the cab, then I would if I, if they were full on going at it in the back of a cab. Like it's a more human, like it's a richer human emotion everybody remembers that feeling where they're like, I like this person and I'm going to put my hand on their hand. Like that, that is more butterflies by far than just making out or whatever. So, so to me it was like, it's those little things that are intentional. And I go, I'm trying to stir emotion that, that reminds you of something that's good in your life, like some good memory, some good feeling. And it was like glorious was the same thing where when we did glorious with the, the, the Macklemore video where he's with his grandma and he surprises her on her birthday. It's like the whole point of that. It was like, man, we want that one. It was real. And we went and showed up on her birthday and she didn't know we were coming. Uh, and, and it was craziness that she had the best day ever. She's a hundred years old, but, but all these feelings where it was like, we, we, we scripted those moments in, in an environment. We did not tell her what to do or how to react at all. And she didn't know where we were going, but it was like, we're going to go to a karaoke thing because there's something emotional about watching when Ben goes, I got my performance personality from this woman. And he's like, so let's go do that. And he's showing, he's like teaching her how to do rap hands. There's just these little moments where you're like, what is this? And he's like, I got my eccentric style and my love of going to thrift shops from her. When we came and visited her when I was a kid, she would take us to thrift shops. So I want to do that. And it was all these things where you're like, these are rich moments. And then we were like, man, she has three really good friends that she plays bingo with. Let's surprise her with those friends. And then let's surprise all of them with a stripper. Like, <laughs> who does this? But it was all these things where like you're laughing just listening to it. And we're going, we want people to experience like joy and a feeling of family and a feeling of friendship and a feeling of intimacy and a feeling of like laughter. And a just so I would say when I write, my goal is to evoke a feeling. And sometimes that feeling is just like, I, I don't know. I mean, I try to get that in even if the creative doesn't allow for it or the song doesn't allow for it. And then the other part is like caring about the artist and going, I'm going to, I'm going to put love into this video. I'm not making clickbait. I'm making something that is genuinely going to draw you in. And, and I'm like, it's a harder process, but honestly, I'm like, it's just me. It's just the way I, I, I try to, I care the things I care about and the people I care about and the way that, 
I like a lot of these are based on stories in my own life. Like, and I'm just, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think that's another really good word for any creatives out there that, and, and, and not everybody can be a creative and not everybody is going to be successful being a creative. And if you're not like trust your own instincts and if you're getting cues that you shouldn't be uh, like do an honest assessment of yourself and if you're like, this is not the move, then then look for what you what are you great at? Like every single person on the planet is creative. It's just you're not necessarily creative in the way that culture recognizes. Um, but everybody's creative and it's more about finding your own voice and figuring out how you can be creative and what you have to offer to like the community you live in or the or the the state or the city or the country or the whatever or the world, like you're, you have something to offer that's your voice that's unique. And I would say take cues from people that you love and start to recognize work that you love. And mimicry is the sincerest form of flattery for sure. Like copy people that you love, but find your own voice. And, and it was really when I found that, cause it was like, people wanted me to push me into this place that wasn't my voice. And it took me a while to figure out after it just kept working. Like they were like, do something a little darker, do something a little a little poppier, do something a little less. And I'm like, you know what my voice is, that I think is really unique. I I'm like, and it's funny because this is, some people would call this a criticism and I'm just like, it's just true. I'm like middle of the road. I'm, I'm like your average person is going to really enjoy this video. That's what it is. I'm, I'm the, I'm the, and this is, this is high praise to myself or low praise, depending where you're coming from. Film students make, make, Film students make fun of Steven Spielberg because they're like, he's a, what a, I'm like, dude, that guy is better at communicating human emotions. Tell me a Steven Spielberg movie you didn't like. It fringes, he's reaching the masses. And I'm like, that's my brand. My brand is that. I'm communicating human emotion and it should be like, it should be corny, but it's not. Like, that's my brand is you look, we watch downtown and you're like, that shouldn't have worked. That totally shouldn't have worked, but it worked. You watch per, you watch perfect. It's the same thing. You're like that shouldn't have worked, but it worked. You watch. You're like we're gonna go shoot a, a guy with his grandma. That shouldn't have worked, but it worked. And I'm just like I don't know. That's kind of my that's my voice in my vein. And I don't think I think who you are. My advice to any artist was the same advice I gave Zoe early on, which is like, learn how to communicate, learn who you are, learn the things that you care about and you believe in. The more solid you are with your like character and your personality and the more confident you are in like your uniqueness and awareness, the better your art is going to be. And and understanding it in the context of like, how are other people going to view this and taking that with great consideration and care so that you're translating whatever your thing is to the, to the people that are going to observe it. But it's your voice. Like if you can develop, it's about who you are. It's about the relationships in your life. It's about growing as a person that's going to make you a good artist and being aware, being self-aware and analytical of your own emotions and your own heart and like your own hardships and tragedies and triumphs and whatever. Like those are the things that are going to be rich and art's going to come out of. But not, but not if you don't, if you, if you're numb, like find your own voice. That's, 
I don't know. But I also, people go, what do you want to do with your, like, what are you going to do? Where are you? I'm like, I, one, I don't feel like I've made it. I feel like I'm just starting. Like, I'm, I feel like I'm absolutely just starting. Two, I, I have no idea what I want to do. I'm like, I'm following. I love, I love making art. I love making art with people. I love telling stories. I love impacting culture. Um, I love, I love a lot of things about what I'm doing and I'm still discovering where that's going to go. And if you would have asked me when I was 18, if I was going to be a photographer, I would have said no freaking way. If you would have asked me if I was, when I was 28, if you would ask me when I was 14, if I was going to be at the VMAs, I would have said not possible. I'm a kid from Belfair. Even if I tried and worked my whole life, that wouldn't have happened. And then if you were like, you're going to be, I was like, I'm going to be a baseball player. And then you're like, what are you going to do now that you can't play baseball? I would have said, I have no idea. And I found photography and started pursuing it. And then if you'd asked me when I was doing photography and loved my life and it was good and comfortable and like things were, were all dialed in. If you'd go, yeah, so you're going to start a whole new career at 28 where you're starting at the bottom and have to rebuild a business and learn how to make my, I'm like, I would have gone no way. And then if you just said that was film, I've been like, I've never wanted to do film before. And now I absolutely love it. And I didn't even realize how much of who I am I have to bring to the table. That was what made directing appealing to me along with the community aspect. But it was like, man, photography, I go into a little shell and my job is to, uh, to like capture things on my own. It's all in my head and then execute it and deliver it to people. Directing is like, uses every part of me. I have to be a leader. I have to communicate. I have to cast a vision. I have to manage people's emotions. I have to produce and like, like design and, and creative think. And I have to write and I have to sell. I have to be a salesman. I have to be an entrepreneur. I have to be all the, and I'm like, this is just way bigger and I have to be relational and I have to, I have to put meaning into things. And I like everything about it it used all of me. And I was like, this is cool. I never would have picked this for myself. That's so rich and so meaningful. And I, I seriously just love that you've just always been making something. And that's a recurring theme that we've heard in a lot of these interviews is um, the folks who end up with successful creative careers almost always started making something from an early age, whether or not they knew where it was going to lead. And you've just always pushed yourself so hard in whatever medium happens to be your life at the moment. And then opportunities came your way and you were willing to take risks and it's just evolved and evolved. And I can't wait to see where things continue to evolve for you. And this, I've, I have enjoyed this so much. If people want to continue to follow you and your lovely wife, Jenny, on your journey, where do you prefer they, they keep up with you on Instagram, Twitter, where can we link to you? Uh, Instagram is where I exist. I, I don't, I don't really do Twitter. And, um, if you want to see my weird, like the real things about me that are funny and weird and quirky and our, our life and personality follow Jenny, which is Jenny Coco, J E N N Y K O E K O E. Uh, it's at Jenny Coco on Instagram. She posts her stuff is hilarious and a better version of her life than mine. Uh, and my, and my Instagram is jcophoto, J-K-O-E-P-H-O-T-O, um, at jcophoto. And that, like, you'll see, I post behind the scenes stuff. And and I post a lot less. Jenny posts all the time. I post more, I post a lot more strategically. And I, I definitely use it as a, it's, it's my, it's a brand. And it's, 
thoughtful and intentional and Jenny is like catching me doing stupid things and posting it on her story which That's is a pretty good funny. partnership right there That's yeah um, well I, I really enjoyed chatting with you.